What follows is an illuminating conversation with Atlanta entrepreneur, Chris Appleton. He's the founder and CEO of Sewn Arts. Reading from his website here, Sewn Arts is a nonprofit organization focused on building demand and capacity amongst hospitals, public health agencies, and corrections facilities to integrate arts-based solutions into their mission and business strategy. His work has been featured in the New York Times, CNN, ABC, CBS, NPR, Fast Company, and more. He's received numerous awards, including the Americans for the Arts National Emerging Leader Award, the Emory Council for Creativity and the Arts Community Impact Award, New Leaders Council Alumni Award, guest at the 2011 White House Youth Summit, doing this without my glasses, that's why I'm stumbling here, was a member of the 2019 Class of Leadership Atlanta, received honors such as the Atlanta Business Chronicles 40 Under 40, Georgia Trends, 100 Notable Georgians, Outstanding Atlanta Class of 2014, and the World Economic Forum's Global Shapers. Let me catch my breath. As mentioned before, Chris is a friend from middle school and the first part of high school. So this conversation is an organic of a catching up as you're going to find on this podcast for sure and perhaps any other. We hadn't really spent any time together since about 1998. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Sewn Arts founder and CEO, Proud Atlantan, Chris Appleton. Chris, it's good to see you, buddy. Great to see you. It's been you a after. long time. This feels weird now that we're recording, but I've been wanting to tell you, uh, it's been really cool to see you around, and I've really wanted to know what you've been up to, because we kind of, I guess in middle school, we hung out, eighth, ninth grade, you went to a different school, I went to a different school, kind of lost touch a little bit. 25 years. So you've got a lot under your belt so far in your career, and I want to talk to you about that. I want I wanted to catch up with you about it anyway, but then I started to find out more and thought this is worth sharing with a lot more people, your journey. Why don't you just start with telling me what you have going on right now? Sure. So uh, in addition to uh, raising a couple of young children with, with my wife in Atlanta, uh, we've got a two-year-old and a six-month-old, which makes for interesting times pretty much every day. I lead a, a small organization that works at the intersection of the arts and health uh, called SEWN, S-E-W-N, SEWN Arts. And we help integrate evidence-based arts and culture solutions into the health and wellness industry. It's a lot of lingo for saying uh, we're trying to improve people's mental health and and give them access to arts and culture experiences. All right. I have tons of questions on that regard. So as much as you want to expand when this horn, oh, that's a train. Sorry, everybody, that's a train. We're in Atlanta. Yeah, we're, we are at Terminus, right? Terminus. The, the end of the railroad. So what are some of the types of art that you have kind of brought light to through your company? Yeah, we, we work with artists that are working in, in visual art, in theater, music, um, kind of all of the above. I, I, to share a little bit about my own kind of relationship to, to yeah. arts and culture, um, when uh, as a teenager, I um, 
despite doing well in school and being a, being a successful, uh, athlete and, and having, you know, lots of friends and a good home life, I, I struggled a, a great deal with substance abuse and, and ended up getting, uh, entering into recovery and getting sober at 19 years old after a couple of, couple of attempts at, at rehab and all that comes along with that. And, um, and, and, writing, creative writing was a, uh, just a huge outlet for me. I ended up studying, uh, studying English in college and, um, and it was a, it was a, a, a really important way for me to cope with some of the challenges of being a young person that didn't have the social lubricant of alcohol or drugs to connect with other people, to kind of cope with what so many, you know, young people are going through and, and found a really fantastic community um, in the arts community. And in fact, uh, ended up starting a business uh, called Wonder Root with a couple of buddies. Uh, one that we went to school with uh, at Holy Innocence really? back in middle school, Alex West. He was a year younger. Alex is still a dear friend of mine, but um, we started this organization that was, um, was uh, providing access to arts and culture uh, production facilities. We had a recording studio and a dark room, pottery studio, digital media lab. We did these community programs um, and grew that over 15 years to a, to a um, very successful organization, nationally recognized organization. And, um, and then I ended up leaving um, about three years ago, a little less than three years ago, uh, took some time to, uh, to learn some important lessons and, and think about my leadership journey. Um, support my support my wife uh during the during the birth of our first child and ended up starting this organization sewn and um it's been and that's s-e-w-n that's right yeah Yeah. and and this this space that we're trying to fill where we really see that there's opportunity and this is kind of getting into the weeds on the industry but for for the last 15 years or so in the arts and culture field, there's been uh, a broad movement and a successful movement to incorporate arts and culture into other parts of civic life, whether that's into economic development, Mm -hmm. into transportation planning, into health and wellness, into criminal justice reform, you know, all these other sort of industries or field. Uh, fields and and that's the that my career has been in that space. Uh, despite the success of this effort, this national international effort over the last fifteen years or so, it's really been which has really been focused on building capacity for artists and arts organizations to work cross sector, right? Work with those civic side or industry side partners, with not as much focus on the building capacity for the industry side partners to embrace arts and culture into what they do. And so that's really the space that we try to fill is, is we focus on hospitals, health and human service agencies, care providers as our sort of client or target audience and help them build their capacity to improve outcomes for their patients through the arts. What is an example of say someone who might have call, just pick one of a struggle mentally and, and might go through this process all the way to y'all's service. Sure. So 
uh, one of the things that uh, I'm really excited about that we are doing is we've got a partnership with Carnegie Hall in yeah. New York. They've been running for several years a fantastic program called the Lullaby Project that pairs professional musicians with young mothers, expectant mothers that are coming usually from difficult backgrounds. So here in Atlanta, we've been working with mothers that are um, in, um, uh, that have um, been in the foster care system. Uh, so this is teenage moms and uh, the, we pair them up with professional musicians and they together co-write lullabies for their children. And there's all this wonderful research that shows how uh, going through this process and writing a lullaby, performing the lullaby, recording the lullaby, which eventually actually gets sent up to Carnegie Hall and there's an album that's produced every year, all sorts of stuff. Uh, it's a wonderful thing that they're doing. Um, but research shows that, that engaging in this activity strengthens the mother-child bond, which not only improves the mother's well-being but investing in a young mother is also investing in that mother's child. Sure. Um, and the, the young women that go through the program do so together. And so there's a sort of cohort or community um, that's formed around it. And it's, um, it's just a great example of how uh, creativity uh, heals the soul, you know? Yeah, man, that's heartwarming. I'm sure you have other incredible partnerships mainly focused on making life better for the people that's that right. is that is what we do we're uh right now we're putting a, a lot of our energy into developing um, a platform if you will not a technology platform but but a network uh by which physicians um social workers counts school counselors prescribe arts experiences for their patients. Mm -hmm. uh, there's two population groups that we're, we're looking at. Uh, one is uh, adolescents that are struggling with depression, anxiety, suicidal ideation, yeah. self-harm. And then the other uh, are seniors, um, people who are 65 plus at risk of social isolation. Uh -huh. um, there's a whole bunch of research with both of those groups about how participating in arts and culture addresses anxiety and depression and then social connectedness. And, and of course, you know, unsurprisingly, thinking about our generation, our parents are sort of getting up there. Certainly our grandparents, um, if they're still around or are much older and social isolation speeds up age-related cognitive decline oh. and participating in, in arts activities slows that process down. Okay. So, um, so this, this program that we're developing, the art pharmacy, um, is, is really trying to enable uh, physicians and other care providers to prescribe arts experiences for patients that are struggling with these issues. And, yeah. and then uh, we direct those patients, those individuals to um, existing cultural experiences around the state. Yeah, gosh, what an incredible opportunity. It's such a good time for it. There's a great book called Lost Connections. Have you read that? I have not. It's by... I think his name is Johan Harari. He's a British writer and he's written some really good stuff about the war on drugs. I think that was since Lost Connections, but it's about mental illness and depression, namely, and how it's not necessarily that, and I'm not a doctor. I'm not going to proclaim that I know where the biological set point of depression begins and ends or how many people are just stuck with depression. 
versus how many people are situationally depressed. But his book, I was quite a lead in, his book outlines the different ways in which our current culture has evolved into this thing that just doesn't yield the types of things we need mentally and emotionally. So like isolation, right? Meaningless work. Those things are, were not necessarily common among our ancestors mm -hmm. that we evolved from. And that reminds me like a lot of your work that I've already learned about right here seems to get in the way of a lot of those things that are in our current culture that are causing those depression, anxiety, all those problems. Yeah, I think at the end of the day, we, um, we're interested. I mean, I know that I personally am interested in, in that sort of systems change level work. Like, yes, we want to and are improving people's lives today. But what we uh, as an organization, what we as a society, you know, need to do is to figure out how to interrupt these larger systems that um, uh, maybe unintentionally ended up operating the way that the way that they are that mm -hmm. um, exacerbates uh, isolation, disconnectedness, um, and and mental health, behavioral health issues that um, that there are not just uh, interventions to uh, treat the symptoms, but uh, there are, are solutions to get upstream and yeah. address these things before they become uh, such severe problems in people's lives or in, in particular communities. Like I said, I'm not a doctor. I don't know where the biological set point for all these problems begins and ends, but I've seen it in myself. I've struggled in the past with what I think was probably situational depression, but it's at least a predisposition to it. And now, like you're saying, I can tell when I'm doing something that would lead to it and to get upstream of that's really important. In fact, coming to a community like this shared workspace switchyard has been something that among other things, um, such as what we're doing right now has at least maybe move me off of a path of isolation that could have led to some, some problems. It's easy to take for granted these types of third spaces, mm -hmm. which I, you know, is a sort of lingo like switchyards or the coffee shop yeah. um, where we go uh, either to meet people intentionally or to just work and be alongside other people. Um, I know that for me, as I've, uh, uh, you know, you're starting a new business, right? We've, we've been at this for less than two years, uh, started it is just me. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, it's not like I've got a big team that, you know, I pick up the phone and, and meetings with all day, all that sort of stuff, especially early on. And so to be able to come to a place like Switchyards and be around other people, uh, I, I think not only is it a benefit to small businesses or to entre entrepreneurs, but I think it's a benefit, uh, just as you're saying, to, um, uh, to our communities. It certainly is. And so two years ago, you started Sewn Arts. I'm going to go out on a limb and say that it hasn't been a smooth, perfectly comfortable journey. No entrepreneur's journey is, right? So tell me about like the hardest part of it. I know it's a catchphrase there on this the title of this podcast is the hard part, but like, where did it get really difficult? Because I'm sure it has. Yeah, it has been. Um, we started exploring what 
this would eventually become in the fall of 2019, we were several conversations into very meaningful partnership with Piedmont Health Systems and then the pandemic hit and um, trying to work in the health and wellness industry, uh, launch a business in the you know, spring of 2020 uh, was, was brutal. And so, so uh, certainly that was a really, uh, really difficult part. Um, <clears throat> you know, I think that we are um, trying to do something with the art pharmacy, this social prescribing concept by which care providers prescribe arts experiences yeah. um, for their patients um, that, that's pretty novel um, here in the United States. And uh, people view arts and culture as a nice to have, not a must have. Mm -hmm. and, um, and that is another really big challenge. Um, we view it as a really important ingredient of, uh, of a whole health approach. Um, it's certainly not the only thing that people need to do, but, but, um, but it's an important way for, for people to care for themselves. And, um, and so finding the language, um, uh, articulating the research, because there's an abundance of research that shows, uh, you know, there are centers for arts and health or arts and medicine at Harvard and Duke and the World Health Organization. And, you know, the list goes on and on. Um, but uh, people still see it as a nice to have, not a must have. Sure. And uh, getting over that barrier um, has been has been a has been a challenge. And I imagine will continue to be a challenge uh, for years to come. So we've got to be smart on on how we address that. Um, you know trying to think about other challenges you know the um do you have any specific stories in which you when you were just starting out say at the beginning of last year where you maybe ran into a wall in a conversation or got to a point where you were like i'm really uncertain as to whether this is going to be sustainable was that ever considered uh i i, I imagine most entrepreneurs until they you know really get over that hump which um for all you listeners out there is years down the road um, when you're over that hump, not months down the road uh -huh. um, where you're asking the question, is it, is it sustainable? Uh, I was having a conversation um, with a potential investor in our work, potential funder in our work. And this person has um, had a very successful career in the real estate industry um, is a pretty sort of middle of the road person, but is a big philanthropist uh -huh. and um, got a personal connection to, to this guy. And he'd asked me to kind of come pitch him and share what we were doing, which I, which I did. And he said, Chris, man, this, this sounds like really fringe idea. And, um, and I want to know, I'm, I'm eager, like I'm a captive audience. Um, but I think you're going to have a hard time. Um, selling this to, um, to people uh, that, that don't already know, that don't already get it. And that was a big um, kind of aha for me 
that my messaging wasn't right. Uh-huh. Right. That that was when I said, okay, this, you know, this sort of tip of the spear arts and mental health concept um, in the way that I'm talking about it isn't the right thing. So what is the people want to be a part of movements, right? Yeah. Like that, that's really when when people are investing, um, unless you get to really sophisticated philanthropy, um, people people want to be a part of movements. And so I had to sort of reevaluate how I was talking about it and what movement is it that um, that we're inviting people to be a part yeah. of. And, uh, and it really is um, about addressing the mental health and social isolation crisis in America. Yeah. Um, so that, that, that is, you know, was and continues to be um, a big question of, of how do we make this sustainable? We've been fortunate to um, have enough funding for, uh, to get through um, at least a couple of more years. But as we know, with, with all small businesses, it, it's always you know, on a razor's edge. Sure. Man. So tell me, like, after that meeting, guy said, things going to be really hard for you. What resources did you come across that were helpful and maybe starting to improve? Well, you know, it reminded me, and I was thinking about this, actually, as I listened to the first episode of the podcast. Yeah, you and 12 other people. (laughs) Um, And... Uh, no, there were more than 12, 15, there were at least 14, least 14, 14 for sure. yeah. that the importance of regularly uh, taking the temperature of trusted advisors. And so I think you asked a question of, of your last guest, you know, how do you know, you know, that to, to keep pushing forward? And his answer was, I had to, I had to trust myself. And any entrepreneur needs to trust themselves. Like, I believe that that is true. But I've really relied on um, sort of a kitchen cabinet. Yes, we have a board of directors that is intimately involved in, in the organization, that governs the organization, does all that sort of stuff. Um, but beyond the board, I've got a, a kitchen cabinet of advisors um, that I check in with regularly and ask the question, are we still headed down the right path? Um, and I want people in my life that tell me no when the answer is no, right? I don't need somebody to co-sign my bullshit, you know, like not necessary. That does not lead me down a path where I am uh, uh, prosperous, where I am making a, a meaningful impact in my community. Um, and so, uh, so I'm regularly asking uh, people to, to help me take a temperature on what we're doing. And, um, and you know, I think like any, any small business, right, take the nonprofit uh, uh, hat off or the nonprofit lens off because that's just a tax status. This is a small business. You know, I got I to gotta pay rent. I got to pay, you know, I got to make payroll, right? I got to deliver on the goods and services that we promise people like, like every other small business. Um, <clears throat> you know, in the first couple of years of any small business, you're learning uh, what the market wants, right? And so when I wrote a business plan two years ago, and said, this is what we're going to do. It's different today. Now, is it 100% different? Is it 75% different? No, but it's 30% different. Um, there's been a, a lot of uh, new information that I've discovered 
over that time period that has helped uh, narrow our our focus. Uh huh. Uh huh. So you said you've got your kitchen cabinet, and hopefully none of the people will co-sign your bullshit. Yeah. Do you remember a conversation when it was less far along, when the business was less far along, that kind of made a light come on for you? I I do. I um. <clears throat> Uh, this is probably right at a year ago. And I was uh, talking to somebody who's been a, a mentor for me through the years and giving him an update on, on what we were doing. And, and, you know, he said, Chris, the way that you're talking about this, um, I think people are already doing it. Um, but you're telling me nobody else is doing this in the South. And, um, and so there's a, there's a disconnect there. Either uh, the way that you're framing this work isn't aligned with how you view it, um, or you're not aware of uh, what else is, is in the market um, for this. And so I had to, to go back and do some thinking about which parts of the suite of services that we provide um, really uh, are in demand um, and really are solving a problem versus what is um, sort of a duplication of, of what others are already doing. And, and, and we don't, I, I don't want to do that. Like I'm not interested in um, starting another nonprofit to do something that somebody else is already doing. Like it is a resource restricted environment mm -hmm. um, and, uh, and I don't need to, to try to reinvent the wheel. Mm -hmm. um, I wanna uh, look at old problems and develop new solutions to them. So, yeah, yeah. Is it, you said in the nonprofit world, you didn't wanna get in someone else's space. Is that common among nonprofit entrepreneurs that kind of wants to collaborate on different things? Yeah, I think it's, I think it's pretty common. Um, a, a couple of things are common. So, um, everybody thinks they can do something better, right? Um, when they don't have experience doing it. And so, uh, and, and quite frankly, I was that person at 19 years old when I started my first business. Um, and uh, it, you know, we, we, did, we did very well, but I was, I was completely ignorant at 19 to what else was out there. Yeah. And, um, and so I, I think that folks do that sometimes very well-intentioned, you know, like no one gets into the, into the nonprofit space or social impact space because, you know, they're, they're money hungry or power hungry, right? I mean, people, people want to do good, um, even if, you know, they don't always know how to do it. Um, and I've, I've been one of those people, right? Like, um, uh, you know, not, a, not, uh, every way that I've tried to solve the problems that the businesses I've run are trying to solve has, has been right. Um, <clears throat> I also think that um, one of the sort of ahas for me uh, over my career journey is how different um, <clears throat> competition is in the nonprofit community versus the for-profit community. If you look at commercial real estate as an example, competitors in the commercial real estate industry 
want their competitors to be successful. There's very much a rising tides mindset, right? Because in if, commercial real estate, in commercial real estate, yeah. that that if if um, you know a particular corridor is getting new investment, and there's you know half a dozen investors and developers that are coming in and building new apartments or condos or you know uh, retail, that's good for the development down the street. Um, and so there's a there's competition, right? Uh, people want to do better than their competitors, but but it's uh, it's not a zero sum mindset. Uh, but in the nonprofit community, and this of course isn't always true, but 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 can be true. I have had this mindset before, and it's uh, uh, it's a challenge for me to not have this mindset, and I need to I need to um, remember to to be supportive of the competition because I do believe that rising tides lifts all, all ships. Um, but in the nonprofit community, it's such a resource-restricted environment. It's viewed as a zero-sum game. And so if, if Foundation A is giving away a million dollars a year, um, they're only giving away a million dollars a year. Yeah. And uh, whether there are five nonprofits that apply for those grants or 500 nonprofits that apply for those grants. And, um, and so folks are so under-resourced and you know, struggle to make ends meet in the nonprofit space that we don't, um, we don't support enough, don't support each other enough. Um, I've been guilty of that and, and really trying to kind of do it differently this go round. Mm -hmm. Very interesting trials and tribulations in the nonprofit world that, but it makes a lot of sense. There's limited amount of money to go toward charity. I yep. don't want to call it charity because that sounds like an oversimplification, but that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And, you know, people that are working in the social impact space are trying to solve society's biggest problems, right? You know, thinking about here in Atlanta, we've got issues around housing affordability. We've got issues around um, access to jobs, you know, uh, 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 racial justice and, and, and inequ you know, racial inequity issues. I mean, these are issues that are hundreds of years old. And you have a lot of nonprofits, some small, some big, that are trying to solve them with a, a really limited pool of resources to address them. And, um, and so I think a lot of the competition and negative uh, competition comes into play when um, folks are just feeling the stress and pressure of, of running their business. Yeah, which you have to consider, like yep. you said. So do you have an example of when it came to light for you that this is kind of a tough game here, this nonprofit thing? Like it's not all sunshine and flowers, right? People are competing for dollars. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think, so I grew up in, um, in kind of private school, North Atlanta. Um, uh, you know, my household, um, certainly my parents did well and we wanted for nothing, but relative to a lot of our friends, um, didn't have gobs and gobs of money. You know, I bought my first car kind of, kind of thing. Good job. Uh, $3,000, you know, piece of junk. Is that the Bronco? That was I the remember Bronco. the Bronco. Yep. And, um, bought it from Jonathan Shapley's brother. All right. Um, and, um, uh, when I, when, when I started this first organization, you know, I'm 19, 20 years old and I'm like, man, I know all these really wealthy people. Um, it's going to be easy to go out and raise a few hundred thousand dollars a year. 
and um, and that could not be furthest from the truth. Uh, one of my first fundraising meetings, uh, sat down with a guy who I, you know, knew relatively well, um, asking him for some advice, asking him for support. And he said, Chris, rich people don't get rich by giving the money away. And, um, and that was a pretty cold thing to say. Um, and, um, and maybe a true thing to say, you know, for some. Um, so I, I knew from early on that meeting the resource requirements of these challenges that um, the nonprofit community is, is trying to uh, serve um, or trying to address um, was going to be really difficult. And, um, but funders, society at large, uh, still expects us to pay our bills on time still expects us to keep the lights on still and expects us to address the most intractable problems of society with way less resources yeah. right and so uh are we then able um as a as a sector able to go out and attract the best and brightest talent to solve these intractable problems um uh, with limited resources, you know, of course the answer is, is no, you know? Um, yeah. And so I do think that's why it takes um, multi-sector collaboration. And we have to have the, the nonprofit sector, the uh, government or public sector and, and private sector collaborating to, mm -hmm. um, to address problems. And anytime lasting sustainable change happen is when uh, people or, or businesses from disparate experiences in life, disparate industries, disparate fields come together, find common values, um, and, and, um, and make change there. We could really use a lot of that now. We could, man. We could. Yeah. It's a tough time in yeah. that regard. Well, I don't want to keep you a whole lot longer. I do want to make sure... I've I know the sound is working, but I want to double check. So I'm going to stop it here and then ask you a few more questions. Great. Just want to make sure. Sounds great. Thanks. This podcast is in its infancy. And with that comes technical difficulties. That conversation didn't all get recorded, which is okay because you saw the best parts. But the end of it included talks between Chris and I about alternative forms of mental health treatment the phases of mental illness and the phase or part at which Chris's company plays the most significant role and a little bit more about both of our journeys. It was a fruitful conversation. I hope you feel that way too. All links to Chris's website, Chris's work, and things mentioned during the podcast will be in the description of the video or the show notes in case this is you are approaching this in audio version only. Appreciate you stopping by. See you next time.